think I think the Venn diagram of me being unprepared and very tired has never crossed over so much. It's quite the same degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, I don't know. Oh, and the sun's in my the eyes. Kind of fix that. To close the curtains. Right. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Even more soporific. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. oh. Here we, are, Here we are, Dan, recording a podcast on a Sunday. It's a Sunday. It's a Sunday it episode. shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's the Protestant work ethic. We shouldn't be allowed to podcast on a Sunday. Mm. Um, oh. but we're doing it anyway. Yeah. I think we've both had nice weekends. Yeah, absolutely. Very good weekends, indeed. I just got back from the north, the, the glorious north. That was very nice. Um, the trains made me... I was. I don't know if they made me more of a communist today. They might have made me a bit more fascist because I had a very bad time. <laughs> I was just very stressed out. This the is whole the horseshoe theory. Yeah, exactly. I. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Guy next to me wasn't wearing a mask, and I didn't want to be like a you know like a hey asshole, put on your mask. But I was just I was but too tired. It sucked. Hang him. Yeah, exactly. Hang him. I mean, we figured it out right before this, right? It wasn't that I was mad at him for not wearing a mask. It was mad that I was mad that I hate wearing a mask and that he gets to not wear a mask just because yeah. he's not going to wear a mask. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Masks, folks. Yeah, we're still talking about them. What are you going to do? That's, I think, the first and last time we'll talk about talk masks about on, this, yeah. on this show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sick of them. Yeah, I know. They suck. I'm sick of them. <laughs> I'm sick of them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sick of not being able to see people's faces, and yeah. I'm sick of people not being able to see my face. Or understand It me makes interactions all. so difficult. Yeah. But yeah. we all know this. We all know this. We all know this. Yeah. COVID is also bad. Yeah. I'll say that. I'd like people to be able to see when I'm smiling and when I'm not. <laughs> you know what? You know what's the worst? Is, and I always feel bad for people. I got some food at King's Cross, and when I was, like, ordering it, it was too loud and like the person behind the counter just couldn't understand me so i kind of had to do like the like pull your mask forward a bit and be like uh you know uh the burger and fries please or whatever and then like put it back and i was like god that what's the point yeah it's no. kind of counterproductive <laughs> if you by virtue of the fact that you're wearing a mask you have to lean right in and shout in their <laughs> yeah, ear exactly. kind of like defeats the point doesn't it <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah 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 i had similar experiences in various pubs yeah. over the weekend it's just yeah like, I thought we solved COVID in this country. It was so weird. I was in a pub yesterday and there were people congregating around a bar. Uh, and it was just like, this yeah. is so strange. I know. Like, I know. <laughs> kind of freaking me out. I've kind but of forgot I, how to order at a, at a bar. Yeah. I did it for the first time recently and I was like, uh, how are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They've still not installed the self-service machines at the bar yet. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. We'll learn again. We'll learn again. We'll learn we'll again. Better. We'll live again. Tell you what, at least I'm not like going through formative, like, at least I'm not in middle school. God, it'd be a weirdo if this happened to me. Like, no offense if any middle schoolers are listening to this. And like, you'll be fine. But like, Jesus. If that yeah. happened to me, I already, it was just like, my social interaction skills back then were horrible. If I were to miss out on a whole year, it would just be like, well, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Not talk, I guess. Yeah, certainly the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's two periods of life that's really been affected by this. I think it's, those kids, and mm. then it's like the sort of three, four-year-olds who, oh yeah, geez, like need to be stepping away from their sort of like yeah parents a little bit or family <laughs> unit a little bit or no, and that's not necessarily true. Just learning to interact with other children, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I imagine I don't really know very much about it, but I sort of imagine the sort of like six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds could probably cope. But I think there's yeah. an important socialization period that happens. Mm. Uh, Sort of late toddler years, which oh, God. 
anyway. Yeah, yeah. shame. It's sad. Damn shame. And old people, too. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah, let's not forget them. Yeah, let's not forget them. Let's not forget the old people, folks. You know what happened to me this weekend? I found my first gray hairs. How about that? Mm. Very exciting. Mm. They're on one of these sides. I don't know if you can see. There. Like okay. The sun. Okay, just in the, the sun one. there. Okay, yeah. well, whatever. Okay, I can't it's see any odd. gray hairs. Yeah, I don't know. It's very weird. I believe you. Yeah. I've had a weird thing going on with my eyebrows. <laughs> Okay. I've got some weird, like, errant eyebrow hairs that are just, like, going all over the place. I haven't noticed that. I think this is, I think I'm getting old. Oh, yeah, that could be a good sign. It's just a bit like, what the hell is this about? <laughs> just off doing their own thing. I'm going to have to learn to pluck my eyebrows. Yeah. Or just train them like you train, like, bees. Yeah, well, I'll just get some, like, mustache wax and sort of, like, <laughs> train my eyebrows with it. Like Dan's constantly surprised these days. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> my waxed eyebrows. <laughs> but not the way you think. Yeah. <laughs> Um, hmm. Well, I when I went up north, Dan, one of the places I went to is York. And you'll be happy to know that there were uh, white roses all over the place. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. As a proud Lancastrian, <laughs> I uh, despair. I don't know anything about the Wars of the Roses. Who no, no, ended up winning? Really. Yeah, I think the Lancastrians. All right. Well, was it? I don't know. Like Henry the Eighth. I, I think there was something to do with like uh, Henry the Eighth guy. Well, or maybe it's Henry the Seventh. Mm. Henry. Yeah, I think Henry the seventh, seventh settled it. Okay. After he got rid of Richard the Third, because I think okay. Richard the Third was a Plantagenet or whoever it was that were the. Mm, the Yorkists. Maybe I'm getting my family names wrong. <laughs> but yeah, that's that was the end of the War of the Roses. I think Richard um, Henry the Seventh settled it. Gotcha. So that's why the Tudor rose is kind of like a red rose with a white rose inside of it, kind of thing. Like it's a white uh, rose overlaid, a red one, kind of that's thing. That's cool. A red, a red bigger one and then a little white one inside, kind of thing. Hmm. Maybe, maybe it was intermarriage that settled it or something. Or like, that's so dumb. Maybe Henry the Seventh married a, a Yorkist. <laughs> I'm glad we don't still do things. Maybe I'm not glad we don't still do things like that. It'd be very funny. It's like one of the one of like Cheney's daughters has to marry Saddam Hussein's son, uh-huh. or something like uh-huh. that, like uh-huh. Uday or whatever. I mean, you're probably fine. We do do this kind of stuff, but like. Yeah. It's mm. probably like internal to. Mm. I mean, it's that was yeah that was internal to ruling classes. Yeah, <laughs> we, maybe we don't make alliances in the same way. <laughs> yeah. No, maybe we don't make like treaties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe wars aren't settled by marriage, but mm. I'm yeah. sure you could probably analyze some celebrity marriages and yeah, be like, yeah, I see what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, I see what's going on here. The uh, the the. the uh, Intermixing of great houses. <laughs> yeah, it's House Macron and uh, <laughs> House Johnson. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, Dan. The re- so if I have my uh, 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 if my memory serves me well to know when we're going to be putting these episodes out. Last week we talked about the uh, primitive mode of uh, uh, production. And uh, we kind of sussed that one out and we decided that it was the best. Um, and also, one interesting thing, so I'll just say this week we're um, getting into the uh, ancient mode of production, quote unquote. Does that mean anything? What does it mean? What does it mean in several specific examples? We're get, we'll get to what we read. But one thing I realized is that the primitive mode, you can kind of, I think you can kind of say the primitive mode because it's like someone who is like a hunter-gatherer in say like, China or like South Africa or, you know, like uh, uh, Northern America presumably lived like relatively similar existences. Obviously, there's a bunch of variety in what they were eating and, you know, their ge- geographical locations and stuff like that. So that would have been different. But I think you can say the primitive mode because like 
their wants were basically began with and ended with getting enough food to survive. And presumably that was done like in similar ways uh, all over the place. Ancient mode, I'm, after reading this, I don't think there is such a thing as ancient mode. It's just, I've just gone like, it could, like, we're looking at two very specific examples today. And I think like, it's just way too broad. And I think, you know, we're getting to the point now where we're kind of trying to figure out what these modes were, where it's like, you really have to get down in the historical, like granular detail um, to see what was meant by ancient mode. And um, I'm really interested in talking about it because I think this was an interesting piece. Uh, Dan, what was it? We read another essay by favored, favored author, favored friend of the podcast, Ellen Mixon's Wood, what was it called? Yes. Labor and Democracy, <laughs> Ancient and Modern. Yeah. Nice. yeah. From Democracy Against Capitalism. Yes, it's a very swift and sweeping overview. She's talking about the what's commonly referred to as the, I guess, the slave mode of production kind of thing, loosely encapsulating uh, Greece and Rome. Mm. although to varying degrees. She's basically talking about Athens in this, isn't she? And to some extent Rome as well, although there yeah. is some some change. I mean, it's an interesting point. You make a very interesting point, and it's something we should come back to kind of thing or always bear in mind. To what extent can certain states be considered to be analogous and to what extent mm. can they be seen to be different? I suppose it's the the case when you're analysing any mode of production, I suppose. Sure. You're always looking for what things are... I don't really want to get into, like, validating the idea of a base <laughs> and superstructure because it's, like, yeah. a, I guess, a contested idea. Mm. But for want of a better phrase, not really attaching too much meaning to that phrase, sure. there is an extent to which, like, there are kind of, like, baseline rules which do define modes of production, and then there are so many different formulations yeah. of of its presentation kind of thing. How much does industrial capitalism compare to agrarian capitalism? Mm. Like there were some baseline rules that mark it out as the same mode of production, but there were so many things that were fundamentally different kind of thing. Mm. Um, obviously one developed from the other. So you could say that one was a kind of primitive form of the other and it's sort of its logic playing out over time in that instance. But when it comes to these other modes of production, which ostensibly lasted, I guess, hundreds and even thousands of years in some instances, the variations are so stark kind of thing. Yeah. And the, 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 it becomes a point where uh, you can lose the, the specificity for the the broad overview kind of thing. Yeah. And I guess it's always worth guarding against painting with two broad brushstrokes, I suppose. Yeah. But at the same time, we're, we're, there is always a place for... Exactly, yeah. Can, putting history in a broad sweeping contextual overview kind of thing but at the yeah. same time um i suppose it's worth keep resisting that urge at the same time or yeah. deciding when it's worthwhile and when it's not when it's theoretically productive or when it obscures yeah. necessary detail i suppose yeah no i think that's a really important really really important point right because it's like We've, we've talked about on this show before, like, if you were to be around during any of these, like, massive changes that we have outlined in history as pre-this, not capitalism, pre-that, capitalism, pre-this, ancient, or whatever, um, how much you'd really notice. And obviously, there were points in English history specifically where, like, you would notice that something's going on if you were forced, like, to all of a sudden kind of, like, align your life with these economic imperatives that Ellen Meekson's Wood talks about a lot. 
I mean, you know, we've talked about before, like the um, hordes of peasants that just were suddenly out of a job and they had no land and they had no way to support themselves and they wandered around Kent and then they died, mm. <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, but also like, so I mean, it it is important, I think, sometimes to like recognize and really get into like the historical granular details so you can actually understand where we're going and kind of like what we're doing. Um, but also if you're just having a normal conversation, I think it's fair enough to uh, have these big broad outlines as long as you're kind of like, you know, I know that it wasn't necessarily this. And I also wonder about like, what have we lived through that could potentially be seen as like a shift in the way that capitalism works? Um, because obviously there were constant shifts in the way the ancient mode, quote unquote, or whatever worked and the way that feudalism worked. And it's like maybe 2008 will be seen as like this broad shift in the way that government intervention works with um works with capital or mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe like obviously the neoliberal period, you know. Yeah, so maybe, like... maybe for us living through, but there's the way around to think it. So well, maybe mm. for us living through it or uh, living through a portion of it, mm. I'm talking about neoliberalism here, I suppose. So we're living through potentially neoliberalism's yeah. decline or end, but like maybe in a hundred years time, people won't see the distinction very clearly. But for mm. now, there does seem to be a stark distinction. I don't know. Yeah, no, very um, true. Like, yeah, I mean, even just like... What will become historically significant, what will be... It's all down to historians, that's it, to some yeah. extent, I suppose. <laughs> some things yeah. that are actually pivotal to history are lost. And mm. like... Well, that's the thing, too, I mean, that's dangerous. Like, I was a little sus about this going into it, because it's like, again, she's ostensibly talking about Athens and Rome and about the role of this, um, like, the free laborer or the peasant citizen and how that kind of interacted with what we now just think of as like slaves and everybody else, the people who ran everything, right? That's how production worked back then. When it, when she talks in this about like bourgeois historians kind of reading into what they want to see in like specifically Athens and the role of like slaves and stuff to justify like things that they want to justify. I was a little bit worried. I was like, well, is she not kind of doing the same thing? Um, and I mean, again, like we do have to say that like this is an essay that is, I don't know, was it 20 pages? And if you wanted to do like an in-depth, like historical, like approach on these topics, it would have to be way longer than that. So it's like, yeah, you, you give everybody the benefit of the doubt. But I think Ellen Mixes Wood has written that book. Exactly. exactly. We're just too but lazy to read it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I've said this before. Like, As ever, the fault is ours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure it's great. <laughs> um, but as always, I think just with ancient history, like you have to be careful who you're reading and what you're reading because she makes an odd to it in this where she says like a lot of the stories that we read were part of this like, uh, you know, property class yeah. of aristocrats. And even in the case of Rome, like some of the some of the historians that we read were like straight up just propagandists. For yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And you've said this to me before in the past, like, even the, the ostensibly like contemporary histories of Rome were mm. written like hundreds of years after the fact exactly, of what they yeah. were writing about. So you're like, yeah, yeah. And some of them were just gossip mongers. Like the best <laughs> one is, well, Suetonius does a, a great uh, history that's just like him being like, damn, and then this guy did this and he slept with this person. Isn't that wild? And it's like, what? <laughs> it's like, this is our source. That's crazy. <laughs> um, but uh -huh. yeah, I suppose we should talk about, I suppose, about what her thesis is and all yeah. of this. And um, I'll let you kind of run with it, but basically what she's doing in part of this is um, trying to set the record straight, Dan, as we love to see people do, yeah. which is take the focus, in, specifically in Athenian society, away from slavery and to show that there was this peasant citizen class who had political rights, um, which is somewhat unique, especially when we think about the ancient mode. Yeah, she opens the, the essay with a very uh, nice poetic line, which is that the the sort of ancient mode of production didn't invent 
chattel slavery, mm. but it may well have invented free labor. Yeah. Um, and she's quite explicit to say that um, it's not a not a um, an, a huge inaccuracy to describe these mode of production modes of production as slave modes of production. But um, she's also suggesting that historians have historically overlooked the pivotal relationship or the importance of the role of the free citizen mm. to that mode of production um, and its place in the class relations of that mode of production as well. So I guess when you talk about a slave mode of production you might be inclined to think that okay so there are there are there are two classes there's a slave owning class and a slave class and the slave class does all the work and is exploited by the slave owning class but she's sort of saying that well it's almost like there's this sort of three-way triangular relationship where mm. there is also this class of free citizen who are almost endowed with unprecedented both democratic rights but also freedoms in the form of uh, freedom from various types of exploitation mm. and expropriation which were entirely unprecedented before and after yeah absolutely they only only kind of appear again to some extent with the rise of capitalism but she's very clear well i mean if there's one primary thesis if there's two theses one is the role of the free citizen in the ancient mode of production has been historically overlooked and understudied and that also there is a relationship between democracy as it appears how how the how the class relations and the economic how the economic class relations i suppose of athens and rome allowed for a form of democratic representation of its citizenship which is uh seems formally uh, analogous to capitalist democracy but mm -hmm. um, because of the class relations of capitalism are not alike at all yeah. I don't know whether that seemed very clear, but we'll get on to, we'll, <laughs> we'll certainly get onto it later on. So. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it, right. Like if you picture, um, I, like I'm definitely uh, guilty of this. Like if you picture Rome, which doesn't get talked about too too much in this, or Athens, like you do imagine a lot of slavery going on, mm -hmm. and that's how the fields got worked. And I mean, like one of the reasons I think that Rome doesn't get talked about too much here is because it's covers a very long period of time where there were big political upheavals and social changes constantly kind of going on. So it's hard to just be like, here's how the free citizen worked in Rome. Because like, if you look at like after like the, the invasions of what would become Spain, like, or, or Gaul, like what would become France, like there were so many slaves coming into the empire that it caused a big crisis, right? Because it totally like got rid of the free labor in and around Rome and it made it so that there were big social upheavals. And that's kind of like, Guys like Caesar and uh, uh, my boy Clodius kind of came out of that upheaval. So it's it's hard to kind of talk about Rome, mm -hmm. but like, but it's it's it sort of points to the fact that in a lot of respects, the interplay and the disruption of stable class relations is mm. central to the unfolding of history in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, hundred percent, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always kind of thought it was interesting with Caesar about how ostensibly he was supposed to be like a, a populare, like a person of the people, and like 
I guess if you were to like take an ideological line from him to Augustus, like he might have supposed to have been too, although that's kind of like up for debate. Like um, the end result of these social upheavals isn't always given because it wound up becoming, you know, an empire <laughs> like with an emperor uh, as opposed to what was supposedly like a republic, right? Or at least a free republic. But um, anyway, the thing the thing that I found most interesting about this when she was talking about Athens was like, if you compare like Athens with feudalism and with capitalism, you can't imagine um, in feudalism and in Athens like changing the political rights of, uh, you know, maybe I'm just going to read what she said because I'm having trouble formulating my thoughts. She says, in ancient Athens, citizenship had profound consequences for peasants and craftsmen. And of course, a change in the juridical status of slaves and indeed women would have transformed the society entirely. In feudalism, jur juridical, oh my God, privilege and political rights could not have been redistributed without transforming the prevailing social property relations. Only in capitalism has it become possible to leave the property relations between capital and labor fundamentally intact while permitting the democratization of civic and political rights. So like her point there is in Athens, like that just speaks to this oddly like specific group of free labor. And as you're saying, like this interplay between like that, but also slavery and also the like landed like property classes as being like very unique. Um, and we can kind of get into what she was saying a bit at the end there and a bit later as it relates to capitalism. But I, yeah, as to sum all that up, I really had no idea that like this, this free labored class um, was really like a, kind of around. And it, it odd, like oddly enough, like when we talk about Greece, it does seem to be specific to Athens too. Like that's just me saying like, I have no idea. She talks about Sparta a bit. Um, and has them just having like helots, but um, mm -hmm. it was fascinating. I think. Yeah. Well. Yeah. When the case of Sparta is brought up, it's kind of it suggested that it's much more analogous to the kind of two class relationship that I was describing before. Right. Mm. You have a citizen class and you have a slave class, but the citizenry largely lives off the proceeds of ownership of property, whereas in Athens you have like a propertied class and you have a non-propertied class who are. Either if they live in cities like uh, craftspeople and wage laborers, there's also a lot of like um, casual agricultural wage labor that goes on. And there's also a lot of people who, um, a lot of tenant farming going on as well, kind of thing. So that's kind of what we mean by f uh, free labor, right? Mm. It's labor which is um, not curtailed, I suppose. I mean, it's not curtailed to the extreme extent that is represented by the containment of freedom that is slavery. Yeah. But there's also other types of containment, right? Uh, feudal class relations, by which I mean like not strictly the feudal mode of production, but like the relationships of feudalism, i.e. serfdom and then peasant farming and that kind of thing. And then also like or other types of like debt bondage that was used to curtail people's freedoms or the requirement to pay taxes to a state which curtailed people's freedoms which these are these are various forms of exploitation of people's labor which mm. didn't really happen in this mode of production or at the least there were a class of person that fell outside of um various forms of exploitation that are largely the norm of all other modes of production except for capitalism mm. and this quite extensive but quite unique uh set of class relations that existed uh, 
in the in certain parts of the ancient world. Yeah. One of the things that occurred to me when I was reading this is there was a point when she's almost setting up the idea that there's sort of like almost two. If you want to define the mode history and its sort of modes of production and its class relations, um. In broad strokes, you could use this to say there is capitalism and there is yeah. almost everything else. <laughs> yeah. um, she's talking about like pre this period in the sort of Bronze Age kingdoms of Greece and the sort of other sort of uh, areas around the Mediterranean. And of course, there's the post ancient world period that is represented by feudalism. And what's definitive of those modes of production is you have a propertied class um and they exploit people by virtue of holding a certain degree of political or um judicial power mm. it's represented by several terms in this essay sometimes it's called like um tributary modes of production sometimes it's sort of bureaucratic um juridical mode of production but basically all of this is just to say that there are ways in which one class exploits another one and that exploitation is backed up by uh, political and legal right and mm. ultimately military force. Yeah. Um, obviously, the ancient mode of production is distinguished from that period because you suddenly have this emergence of a class which is not curtailed by these forms of exploitation. Obviously, they still have to work for a wage mm. and obviously, they still have to pay rent to their uh, sort of landlords, supposing that they're peasant farmers or what have you. Um, but they are liberated from the sort of most extreme versions of these kinds of tributary exploitation mm. that are that represent basically what she seems to be suggesting is all the rest of human economic history, excluding sort of primitive communism. The and then also capitalism mm. which has a different class relation which we've talked about before and we'll come yeah. on to in a bit yeah no i mean we got that phrase right that we that was so important to when we had our last ellen meekson's wood reading right the the when we actually read her book um i think that was the last time we read something by her but we got uh her, her talking about extra economic forms yeah. of exploitation right um it is interesting because it's like yeah there was primitive where it was kind of like did its own thing for a very, very long time. And then with the Neolithic Revolution, which we're a huge fans of on this show, um, you get these, like, a series of different kinds of extra economic exploitations of producers, and then you get to capitalism, which is, like, brand new. It's really, really, sure. really an interesting yeah, yeah, way yeah, yeah. of studying it. Yeah, we've talked about it in the past, but, yeah, it's really worth reiterating because for me, in the things that I've learned from doing this podcast or doing these readings, mm. one of the things that's most striking is this distinction between, as you say, economic and extra economic modes of uh, forms of exploitation rather mm. the types of exploitation i was describing before those represented by feudalism or like uh the bureaucratic jur juridical forms of exploitation <laughs> which i suppose um in some ways are best represented perhaps by um state absolutism yes yeah if you yeah, look yeah. to if you look to pre-revolutionary france say mm. um they would all be considered to be extra economic modes of uh, forms of exploitation. The exploitation of the labouring class doesn't happen in 
in isn't facilitated by mechanisms that are unique to the economic mode of production mm. but the but production happens and then the landlord comes and takes some stuff from you afterwards yeah so like you you own the land and you do all the production and then you just owe a certain amount of that production to the landlord or to the church or to the mm. state and usually that's backed up by legal right and military force yeah whereas under capitalism the exploitation is economic yeah like your surplus is taken away from you before you even have any chance to have it because mm. because of the structure of like wage labor that we have mm. right like uh, as was so central to the critique of capitalism that we came across in the fundamental principles series of readings uh i suppose in capital <laughs> uh the the proletariat is deprived of any ownership of both the means of production and also any direct ownership of what they produce mm. and all they have is their wage labor and they sell it for a wage and so it's those economic dynamics which uh, facilitate exploitation under capitalism and it's mm. the thing which for Ellen Mixon's wood makes capitalism almost unique from all other economic forms yeah well it's interesting too like she brings up how scary it must have been for like the ruling classes when it seemed like universal suffrage was about to come around because she makes the point that like the fact that capitalism was able to keep this this um exploitation purely in an economic sense while still having like you know heavy air quotes like formal democracy is it's crazy and it is like when you think about it like that because you know if you were part of the ruling classes you must have gone damn if we give everybody universal suffrage if they can all vote well then they're just going to vote to not be exploited anymore but it's like okay well like the point around capitalism is that the exploitation isn't taking really place in the like um, political sphere or anything like that. Like it doesn't, as you say, like the queen showing up and being like, give me your uh, broad beans or whatever. It's taking place entirely um, because of the market and because of all of these economic different imperatives, wage labor and stuff like that. One thing that's funny and I would kind of like to, to um, pause on is that like all studies of Greece and of Rome are so driven by ideology and that that's kind of how you're supposed to think about like, well, you know, the reasons that the Romans went into, uh, went into Gaul was because, you know, uh, Julius Caesar was, he wanted to have honor and that's honor was the thing all around Rome. And that's the reason they went out and uh, expanded all around the world. That's kind of like the Dan Carlin reading of history, which, you know, Dan Carlin, awesome guy, love his show. Shout out to Dan Carlin. But still, it's like, you get the same thing about Athens where it's like, well, these were, you know, the cradle of democracy, baby. And it was, they had these, uh, 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 you know, they they had slaves, so, you know, not really a cradle of democracy, but, like, you look back on it, and it's all supposed to be driven by ideology. Class doesn't play a role in the way anything shook out ever. And exactly, like, if like as we were kind of saying, like, if you were to look at, like, the, the fall of the Roman Republic, that, again, is, in modern history, is just driven purely by ideology. It was just uh, ambition and gumption, and that's what made everything fall apart, as opposed to the grinding wheel of history that kind of, like, we study, which is the uh, class struggles that kind of push history not necessarily forward but move it certainly um and so it's interesting kind of taking this new reading of of greece and of rome because like i definitely fall into category of thinking that so much of this stuff especially in the ancient world was so ideologically driven because it's so hard not to when there's so little to go on and like wow you have these awesome stories so you know like whatever but it's like hey wait a minute there were class relations in greece and there were class relations in rome and it wasn't as simple as slave and a man in toga in marble floored room you know what i mean it's 
Yeah, I, was, I think that's the thing that I was fascinated most with. It's just kind of like shook me out of that dumbass, like ideological, like history is just driven by the people who have the ideas to do the things, you know. So I dig it. <laughs> yeah, there's a few things that come to mind. I'm trying to work out which ones to go with. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, what's most interesting about what you just said there or the point that you raise that we haven't talked about yet is the way in which Meekson's word is presenting both free labour as being very central to all of the functioning and the debates that happened internal to this mode of production, I suppose, but also how the rise and fall of free labour is central to the rise and fall of this entire mode of production. Mm. Yeah, Um, She doesn't really come down either way well, she doesn't, de- she doesn't necessarily describe the relationship of basically what the causal mechanisms are. What was it that caused free citizenship a, or the existence of a free citizenry mm. free from exploitation and endowed with significant uh, political and economic rights? What was it that allowed that to come into existence and also... She doesn't really come down on an answer to the argument of why that mode of production kind of collapsed as well. Mm. But one of the things she is pointing out is this transition, clearly what's represented by the transition into and out of this mode of production is a transition away from exploiting labour in this sort of tributary juridical manner. And the adoption of a new form of exploitation, which is exploiting the slave and uniting um, the sort of like the unity of a landowning politi- a class and a, and, a, and a non-property-owning class into almost one political body who then uh, exploits uh, a slave class, I suppose. Mm. Um but the best way to define the transition from the ancient mode of production toward feudalism is a transition back towards um, tributary and bureaucratic judicial forms of exploitation that had existed before um, the rise of uh, these ancient civilizations, right? So, like, how labor is exploited and the class relations of... Um, these various forms of mode of production and the 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 political class conflicts and the interplay between classes is central to the transition into and out of these various modes of production, mm. which is almost a I guess a truism of the <laughs> the, 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 the the theories that underlay this podcast. Well, it's been tested. It's been tested <laughs> once again, and it's true. <laughs> I mean, no, it's true, and it's interesting because we again we don't get too much about Rome in this but when she does talk about rome i gotta fucking move again this goddamn light um when she does talk about rome she talks about how there was just so much more i mean it's also it's kind of comparing apples and oranges with rome and with athens because rome wound up just being so much more massive um but she talks about just how there was so much more property accumulation in rome and that that like kind of created to and it created its own crisis in that 
these, you know, these, when she talks about latifundias, which are basically like enormous slave plantations, where she basically says that they're barracks full of slaves, right? And that that couldn't exist under Athens. But when it did exist in Rome, like that led to a greater demand for slaves, which then led to like, you know, perhaps led to invasions that produced more slaves and then way more slaves than anybody could handle that basically like the kind of like unnuanced reading of history. Although this is kind of the only one that I know, so I guess I'll just repeat it, is that that led to like this complete um, shift away from like the free laborer in Rome, which then led to all of these social upheavals, kind of et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's interesting that like that is kind of ha- like, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that that's what led out of the... Um, uh, the like free laborer in Rome was just that like the class conflict kind of created its own conflict, if you know what I'm saying. Like it created its own crisis, I suppose, in that um, the accumulation of slaves then just led to more slaves and it led to more and more slaves. And then um, I'll be honest, I don't really know kind of where things went from there mm-hmm. once the empire kind of stopped expanding and, and whatnot. I suppose yeah. it would have been pretty regional. Yeah. And she does make the point, right, that like the eastern part of the empire didn't have room for many slaves like this. But also, I suppose... The, it's just like fairly different cultures and much more developed cities. And Rome just was kind of like, uh, do your own thing. If that's working, it's working for you. Yeah. I mean, she makes the case or the claim that like um, Rome was kind of like the pinnacle of this mode of production. Mm. But I guess also maybe it also laid bare in starkest terms some of the contradictions of it as well. I suppose we've already talked about the disruption to the life of the free laborer by the sort of importation of vast numbers of slaves. Mm. Um, But I suppose also when access to sufficient slaves became uh, problematic, either because they'd already invaded everywhere they could invade or because the borders of the empire were beginning to collapse, that's when the, the landowning class has to start resorting to different forms of exploitation in the forms of like the conventions of serfdom or like mm. what have you yeah so i.e the transition away from the those those um ostensibly free citizens had to transition back toward being um take up a different position in the class relations which was one that was much more curtailed by the requirement to offer tribute to a landlord say or mm. like pay taxes to a state yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, y- you hear a lot when you talk about Rome about like just because, you know, we constantly think of like the collapse of the Western Empire as being the cat- cat- catastrophes of all catastrophes. But you do kind of have to wonder like how much the average person's life changed because like there had been a steady decline in like what we might term like welfare in Rome for quite some time, which led to like the population of Rome going down quite a bit. But it's also like, you know, if if this class conflict kind of did lead to more extra economic um uh, ways of exploiting producers that were closer to feudalism, then you would assume that, like, it wasn't as black and white if you were living in, say, like, Burgundy when, like, oh, Rome sacked, okay, whatever. Like, I'm, it's still the same. I don't th- I don't have enough historical knowledge to say whether that's true or not, but it would certainly make it seem a lot easier for that transition out of, like, a collapse like that to just seem like, all right, well, it's kind of been like this forever. Yeah, I mean, the... the... The empire wasn't like a bubble that burst and suddenly yeah. everybody was like... <laughs> that would have been so much cooler if it was. ...beset by barbarians. Yeah. <laughs> People like, with mustaches. <laughs> like the decline took a hundred years, right? So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah, even yeah. multiple hundreds of years, you know, like mm. the borders were gradually shrinking and like the populations of cities were reducing and more and more people were going back to um, 
agricultural life, I suppose. Back to, to, to tradition. <laughs> <laughs> Back to easier ways of living now. People knew how to live. People were going back to hunter-gathering. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, if only. <laughs> um, well, I, su- I suppose if we're kind of talking a little bit about bourgeois interpretations of Rome, hmm. it's interesting, the bourgeois interpretations of Athens and how much that's changed, because she makes a point. She says at one point, she says, I don't know if she mentions who this was by name, but at one point she makes a sneaky comment by saying, like, a well-distinguished British historian of the 18th century. And it's like, oh, is she talking about Edward Gibbon? She hmm. quotes him, and it's, it's very funny. But um, she talks about the, the reasons that we think that Athens and Rome were just slaves. And perhaps it had something to do with the ideology of um, mid-18th century Europe, and specifically Surprise, surprise, she's mad at England again. She's mad at one because specific I'm Tory. British. <laughs> I'm British. And it's interesting because she ties it into um, the French Revolution as well. I'm trying to find the bit where she says it. Um, yeah, she's basically talking about the, uh, the the views of various historians and then how they, ha- how they map onto uh, changing economic circumstances at the time when those historians are writing, right? Mm. So she's saying that, the an acknowledgement of the existence of the free citizen of the various ancient states what an acknowledgement of that was widespread in the histories of the ancient world that existed in the sort of like immediate immediately prior to the early stages of capitalism kind of thing so in the 18th century people were quite aware of this the existence and the class dynamics of the ancient mode of production. Um, and then it took these ideologues of capitalism to come along and really to start um, wanting to downplay and hide the existence of the free citizen. Or more importantly, to degrade the degree of contribution that they made to the economies of these country- of these states because... When I mean, she ties it back to things we came across in her book on the origins of capitalism, i.e. the idea of the requirement in the early phases of mm. capitalism to teach people to produce productively yeah. and the idea of in improvement. And she comes back to our our, our famous ideological, our, our favourite rather, <laughs> ideological assertion that uh, labour and production, productive, like the, the idea of the producer isn't the actual person who does the laboring but is actually mm. the person who puts the workers to work i.e. The, i.e. the capitalists the right? job like, creators the job creators yeah <laughs> um and as soon as the focus shifts towards um historians and uh various propagandists and idea um ideologues taking the side of the virtuous capitalist and their the requirement for them to tame nature and to put laborers to work and to improve the productivity of their labor um there is a real desire to uh, degrade the place of the free laborer in um the ancient mode of production they start to describe them as the idle mob <laughs> the licentious mob yeah, yeah, yeah they, they, they were they were a citizenry of Greece and Rome who managed to escape the discipline 
that comes from having a master that's necessary to make one work as hard as one ought to do, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so we're coming back to a sort of fetishes, fetishization of a kind of like master and slave dynamic and a celebration of a master who gets the most out of their slave kind of thing. And so in this sort of like early um, capitalist interpretation of the history of Greece and Rome, the free laborer fell outside of that master-slave dynamic. And so um, they fell into a position of being heavily scrutinized and criticized because their labor wasn't being sufficiently disciplined. And because we now had to celebrate the disciplining of labor and because there was a, here a class of person whose labor was sufficient, insufficiently disciplined, um, they irked quite significantly the intellectuals of that period. Yeah, I like how the Tory that she quotes is basically saying, like, us in England, the classes get along. <laughs> we all <laughs> exactly. love each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, it's not like effing France where they have class conflict or Greece. It's very funny. It's very like, I, don't, I almost don't even know what point he's making. It's, it's like... He's like, yeah, we all we all get along because we all kind of know our place, I suppose. Yeah. And it's interesting because she kind of she quotes um, another an unnamed Chinese philosopher as well, who kind of makes the same point about like, listen, there are people who work with their hands, and there are people who work with their minds, and you know that's fine, but this is everybody's place in life, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, and I mean, there's such a paradox about it too, because it's like she talks about how there is like the Tory interpretation of Greece, but there's also like the liberal interpretation of Greece, which comes back to the same thing, but like. The paradox is also like, well, you can't hold up like, well, we designed the Supreme Court to look like this because it goes all the way back to ancient Greece and the cradle of, you know, of civilization while still talk about, uh, uh, well, you know, it's basically just slaves and the other people. It's like, uh, bourgeois historians, they've messed me up so much. It's, it's like impossible to get out of that worldview of like, I don't know. Everything as kind of just like uh, fitting, fitting modern day and fitting exactly how the ideology of today is supposed to be fit. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up this um, the the discourse of the the laborer and the person who directs labor, the kind of mm. master and slave dynamic, and a non not in a non Hegelian sense kind of thing, <laughs> um, as being an aspect of the political and philosophical debates of the ancient world as well. I don't mm. know whether we want to get into talking about Plato. I think you and I both found this. I think we the, don't want the, to talk about Plato. The, we both, well, you and I both found this, this several pages on Plato a bit... Um, tedious. Yeah, perhaps tedious. I tell you what, I whenever know. anybody starts talking about virtue, I, my brain just shuts off. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm not yeah, trying yeah. to be like coy or clever, but it's just like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting to some extent. I mean, the reason why she brings it up... I'm going to get into it. I'm sorry, oh, Jack. no. <laughs> The reason why she brings it up is because she really wants to... Well, the contribution that it makes to the narrative is to say that there was a class conflict that was going on in Greece and Rome. This was a dialogue that was happening, right? And then Plato was reacting against it. Yeah, obviously Plato, the famous anti-democrat, was like, there are people whose loss in life is to be creative and be sort of experts in various artisanal fields and then there ought to be a person who is expert in politics and the running of a state ought to be left to them kind of thing so it's creating this sort of like tiered distinction between um, people who are fit to govern and people who are only fit to be governed and there the point being that there was always people for whom um 
a subordination of the or a uh, yes i suppose a subordination of the the free citizen and a transition away from the sort of like pinnacle of democracy that was represented by um ancient athens would be advantageous to their class position i suppose so there was always this class conflict or that sort of intellectual conflict happening even in these modes of production um and it's almost kind of like reproduced in this early capitalist period where they wanted to make similar arguments kind of thing but um rather than rather than it being a distinction between uh, people who were fit to govern and people who ought to be governed there was this new distinction between people who were only fit to labor and people who were in the privileged position of directing labor productively kind of thing um and she also makes a very interesting point that um almost plato's ideas about um class relations almost comes to define all of his philosophy kind of thing it's you can make the case that even his like theories of knowledge and his epistemology can sort of like be extracted or uh draw their inspiration from these ideas about um relationships around labor and um masters and slaves and the rest so if that sounds interesting to you go and check out the book <laughs> one of the other things i was thinking about talking about quickly was um because it's quite often overlooked in discussions of slavery particularly if you think about like um early capitalist chattel slavery one of the things that is most starkly different between that and the slavery um, as represented by um, ancient athens and rome is that slaves kind of fulfilled basically every role in society that you can imagine them doing kind of thing like there's a there's a point where she's talking about a famous greek banker who had been a slave and then became freed and then became like um one of the wealthiest people in greece um and he had kind of been he'd been a banker when he was a slave kind of thing people were teachers and slaves people were civil servants and slaves kind of thing so being a slave didn't really speak to performing a particular type of menial labor it was kind of like slaves were incorporated into um all facets of um greek economic life i suppose there are certain places where she says that they appear more often like uh domestic servants were predominantly slaves and uh um, silver mine workers were predominantly slaves but then in other areas there was a sort of intermixing of uh, laborers being free citizens and laborers being slaves um, without any kind of distinction for what kind of labor they were performing which i thought was really interesting yeah um, and the other the other sort of like fact i suppose of what this mode of production actually looked actually looked like to us when she was giving some statistics about the composition of um, Athenian society and the numbers of slaves relative to the number of free, free citizens. And I think she eventually settles on the idea that there were about 20 or 30% of the population being slaves, um, which is quite interesting when you think in terms of them defining this mode of production as a slave mode of production, but slaves were never actually the majority of the laboring citizenry of um, these states. Now clearly they were the primary exploited class and most sort of like economic exploitation was um most sort of like 
uh, profits for the owning class came from the labor of slaves. So certainly the lab- the slaves were the bedrock of that civil- of that those modes of production, but they were in no way the majority of the population. I mean, it's it's funny, right? Because you always like you again. This is the problem with studying ancient history. It's like she cites two numbers that are pretty radically different about like how many slaves there actually were in ancient Athens. But it's also like, why weren't there slaves? I suppose they didn't have the opportunities to like conquer places quite like Rome did. Sure. Um, so it's not just that like, perhaps that like, you know, this one system worked perfectly and they had enough slaves for themselves and they didn't really need to do anything else. Um, yeah, she makes the point that in Athens, like land holdings by certain um, propertied persons were nowhere near as extensive as they were in Rome, you've already sort of spoken to this to some extent. And I presume that's just because of the availability of the land um, or maybe the possibilities for accumulation of property were just so much more extreme in Rome than they were in um, Athens. Yeah, 100%. I mean... But also, like, the the possibility of that also led to the development of Rome in the way that it didn't... to the development of Greece, I suppose. Like, Rome could develop and expand because it already had this model of large land holdings and vast numbers of slaves working on that land kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think I think to really like I suppose like consider a lot of these questions, we would need like a much more like in depth like study of mm-hmm. the actual history. But I think what I've what I've gotten most from this is just like the broad strokes of um you you can't really just rely on saying like the ancient mode just like it's really typical like or like difficult to rely on just saying the feudal mode because like there were so many variations in it and you would have to imagine like how someone in like a free laborer in say Rome or Athens would do to be dropped into another society that we would consider also to be like the ancient mode like what would happen to them if they were suddenly dropped into like Persia you know what I mean or like dropped into the middle of Tessaphon like what would actually would it seem similar? Like, would they just be completely alien to them? Would it be uh, somewhat easier for someone in, say, Rome, who was a free laborer, to be dropped in the middle of, like, you know, feudal France during, like, the 12th century? How would these things actually change? So, I mean, like, I think the most useful thing about the about this whole essay was just, like, you can't sum up the ancient mode e- as easily, obviously, as you can, like, the primitive mode. Um, and that isn't for lack of evidence. That isn't for lack of trying it's just that uh, there are a number of variations. And I mean, it's 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 also really interesting, too, to think about, like, her thesis on the emergence of capitalism is, you know, reacting against the um, commercialization model, which is just like, this was always going to happen. So we were always leading up to this. When she's like, you know, there could have been a number of other things that would have happened. You look at the failure of Florence. You look at the failure of, like, or not, not necessarily the failure, but, like, we aren't doing Florentine capitalism and we aren't doing, like, you know, Dutch capitalism. We're doing this, like, very specific thing. Um it's just, it's 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 kind of just like the same thing, but in a different time period. It's like the ancient mode of production could have been one thing. It could have been this. It could have been a million different things. Um, but it is it is also, I suppose, just interesting to kind of like take note of also just how slavery worked then versus kind of like you can't really compare that as well to say like American chattel slavery because by then uh, people were definitely subject to the whims of markets and you know. Sure. Yeah. She just say that. Um, like Southern American chattel slavery was um, a form of economic production that was disciplined by 
as you say, market relations, the requirement to produce productively, um, the requirement to serve a global market kind of thing. Like it was, it was entirely subsumed under the new logic of capitalism in a way that um, ancient slavery clearly wasn't. Mm. Um, yeah. So there are some Which is also distinctions. Like... And also like, sorry, and it's also, sorry, <laughs> it also speaks also to why that slavery only ever applied to like what quote unquote like menial labor rather than those slaves were never set to skilled tasks, I suppose. Um, mm. Yeah. They, the slavery pre provided a sort of very basic workforce for sort of like, yeah, for agricultural production, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. It's also, I suppose, where you get the dissonance in like bourgeois, you know, textbooks where it's like, you can't really explain the like, this was a slave society. And it's like, well, why was one of these slaves a banker? You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Um, so this is, yeah, just definitely an interesting way of, of looking at everything. And like, yeah, I don't know. It makes you think that you need a lot more terms and a lot bigger of a language to kind of describe all of the different um, forms that class antagonisms have taken throughout the world. Um, but at the same time, like when you read through like the German ideology or something like that, it's like you understand why these phrases are used and you understand why it's just like, all right, let's just put this one to bed. Like, let's, we'll get, we, this isn't an essay all about, you know, the differences between the Athenian city-state and, you know, Rome during the fall of the Republic and the class antagonisms that existed then. Um, even after reading this, I think it's, you know, I am comfortable to say ancient mode, even though I know that, like, these are pretty radically different. Just Even just comparing Rome and Athens, which are here, supposed to be compared. Um, I think it's really, really interesting. I would love to know more about, like, how class manifested itself in, like, the Persian Empire or in, like, China at this period. Um, but I don't. <laughs> just to see, I suppose, how different or similar um they would be yeah 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 I, if this reading contributes to a sort of ongoing question of ours or at least an ongoing question for me i suppose it's as we've been saying throughout like what is the appropriateness of a sort of like orthodox marxist mm. description of the various economic modes of production is it useful to think in those terms or um should we be also looking always be looking for a greater degree of specificity such that those sort of sweeping pieces of terminology sort of disappear kind of thing yeah um are there more appropriate is there a more appropriate schema for understanding the development of um economic history that we could apply that's different to a marxist one is the marxist I mean, maybe, one not useful maybe it's maybe it's just maybe it's just what she's kind of trying to do here which is just like there are the three there's the primitive one although she doesn't really talk about that and then there's you know the one in the middle <laughs> and then there's capitalism yeah, yeah it's yeah, like yeah. everybody just eat your food that's all we want to do then there's the extra economic and then there's purely economic yeah yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah i mean because yeah. i think one of the the most important reason why we bring up like modes of production and why we even talk about them at all is to prove that capitalism is this historic aberration and that it wasn't just all of human history working towards this one thing. Yeah. And once you take that, once you realize that, then it's like, oh, well, we can get out of it. Yeah, and yeah, hey, yeah. if we were to get out of it, how would things look? Well, okay, we wouldn't want to go back to just, you know, people being exploited extra economically. What if there was no exploitation? Mm -hmm. What if we all just hunted and gathered? <laughs> <laughs> That's socialism. Mm. There was something I thought we could end on, I suppose. I don't know, unless you've got other things to say. Kind of wanted to... Um, perhaps bring up the distinction she makes between um, formal and substantive democracy. Mm. She's kind of making the case that in the ancient mode of production, you had a substantive form of democracy because 
the democratic rights that were afforded the free citizen allowed them to prevent against economic exploitation. Whereas the democracy that we have under capitalism is only formal in the sense that it doesn't give us the means to escape our economic exploitation, I suppose. And if we, she basically ends with a sentence, which is kind of like, if we want to move toward a more substantive form of democracy for ourselves, then we're going to have to also transition away from the capitalist mode of production. And I suppose have a form of democracy that affords us some democratic freedoms and rights. Yeah. Uh, which kind of which kind of chimes quite nicely with the fundamental principles in some way, like, um, or just just a sort of um, mainstay of Marxist and left wing propagandism, which is that you can't have a function of democracy without economic democracy. I yeah, suppose. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I was thinking about how, like, kind of like. Uh, is this going to be mean? But like the liberal socialist, meaning like the socialist for liberals is generally kind of like Cornell West, right? Like mm -hmm. he's someone who goes on like Colbert Report and is like, how can you have democracy in the political sphere? Heavier mm -hmm. quotes mm -hmm. for me here. And, but not democracy in the economic sphere. We need to extend that to the, uh, to the economic sphere. And that way of th phrasing it is like, it's very good, but it almost just seems like, well, what about if, hey, what about, like, we're clearly obviously not saying, right, what about if we just kept everything the way it was, but you could vote on stuff at work? You know what I mean? Like, that is, that's like clearly not it. So it, it would be like, it is very important, obviously, to like, you know, extend democracy and have all of these substantive rights. But mm. um it isn't simply enough to think that you can obviously, if you listen to Edinburgh shows, you know this, but maintain like the market and maintain these things and maintain all of these economic uh, exploitations and think that, you know, just because now our vote means something more than everything's okay. You know what I mean? It is, it is going to be, I suppose, as substantial of a shift, if not perhaps more so, um, than uh, the syphilitic British uh, gave to us in the 17th century, bringing us capitalism. <laughs> I can only apologize precisely. <laughs> None of these people were Lancastrians, Dan. They're probably all Yorkists. All right. no, I bet. Yeah. Probably all red ro or white rose people, if you know what I mean. No. <laughs> um, I technically didn't grow up in Lancashire, so. Well, know. more so that than uh, the other one. Yorkshire. More so that than the other one. It's interesting. I am appreciating these um elucidations on modes um, mm, because again yeah. i think it is like a very vital part of like propagandizing is that look at all these different phases that humanity has gone through look at the one we could have look at this aberration that we have now because it is just so baked into everybody's minds that this is what we've always been working towards so sure. it is good yeah, to yeah, just be yeah, like yeah. slapped every now and then yeah, yeah of course yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. true yeah 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 human beings have existed in forms which were almost antithetical to the logics of capitalism, not um, a sort of a premature version of yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think we both agree that a, a vital propagandistic tool is to be able to point out the specificity of the capitalist mode of production vis-a-vis -vis other forms of mm. economic life. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're going to have to do this. We're going to have to find a reading to do this. And it's not going to be anytime soon. We're going to have to find a reading to do this, uh, to kind of start talking about feudalism as well. Mm. And the various forms that that's taken all over the world. And even like, you know, 
Again, if you were to drop, like, a peasant from, like, the Holy Roman Empire in, like, you know, like, the 1300s or whatever, would that peasant know what's going on in England? Or would they have any idea what's going on in Italy at that same time period? So, yeah, we got to crack that nut eventually. Yeah, I mean, there are very so many different forms of mm. feudalism kind of thing from, like, Russian serfdom to, like, mm. the French peasantry to, like, I don't know, like, how different and distinct were even those forms. And even uh, as this book kind of suggests, like how similar were certain types of uh, feudal economic life to economic life that preceded the existence of the ancient civilizations, I suppose. Yeah. The ancient civilizations. Yeah, it's a bit of a mystery. A quote unquote, obviously. (laughs) Obviously, obviously, Greece and Rome weren't the first quote unquote civilizations, nor were they like. Objectively, it's pinnacle or anything like that. Like, it would be horribly um, uh, Eurocentric. Things you know what? I like the I like the old Roman distinction of civilized versus not civilized. They say if you got shipped to a, being a governor of a province where they didn't grow grapes or olives, then that was barbarian. Yeah. That was bad. Okay, okay, yeah, I live with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we can get with that. Yeah, basically just the Mediterranean. Okay, <laughs> just about grow grapes here now. I don't know whether you can. That's grow true. Olives yeah, yet, yeah. So. There's a guy in the allotment next to me who's growing grapes. Nice, nice. So, no so clearly, global warming is bringing yeah. civilization to <laughs> oh southern my England. God. We did it. Oh my. God, <laughs> that's not uh-huh. that, I, that's a that's climate. Capitalism is a civilizing force. Clearly, yeah, exactly. it was a climate determinism. Yeah, we're not te- we're not <laughs> technological <laughs> determinants. We're climate determinants. I mean, that exists. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it existed in the nineteenth century, anyway. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah very true. Yeah, did, did climate determine intelligence and intelligence I determined love that? I, I don't love know. That. There's quite a lot of overlap between. Uh, uh, Studies of climate and uh, early eugenicism. Yeah, yeah. It were, yeah, stuff where it's like the Swiss live in a rocky uh, neighborhood, so they're tough and rugged. It's yeah. like, <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, yes, sure. Yeah. There's a lot of stock put on humidity back in those days. Yeah. I think, like, how I mean, humid just, was the environment? We can tell why that is. That's yeah. like only Germany, France, and England know yeah. what's going on. Well, it's been pretty humid here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Britain wants to set itself up as the most civilized place. What do we have? What yeah. huge amount of humidity? That's basically it. Where it, rain, it rains is. a hell of a lot. Man, on the train, I saw a type of a weather phenomenon I'd never seen before, and it was very evil because as I was about to pull in the station, there was like this low fog all around. Like pretty much as soon as I crashed into Yorkshire, which was suspicious. Mm. All it was like not fog in the sense of like. You wouldn't really walk around in it, but it was only in the like valleys and like the dips and the saddles of the mountains. I was like, what? Yeah, it's funny that I've never experienced that very often when you can get above either cloud cover or like fog or like that kind of thing. Yeah. It's very eerie. What the hell's going on up here? (laughs) Dracula or whatever. Um, All right. Well, uh, as we've said before, Dan and I are going to be going away soon. So um, we're getting all these podcasts all uh, recorded and whatnot. We have a couple very exciting things coming up for you that we won't really mention, except one of them. We're going to be finishing the CIA book, which is very exciting. We'll be doing that soon. From the perspective of this episode, though... That'll be in many weeks. <laughs> it'll be a long yeah, time. Not many weeks' time. Two or weeks time. Weeks time. Look forward to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and we also potentially have one more thing coming up that is extremely exciting, more exciting than that. Um, and that will happen... Next week. Next week. If it in happens, it'll happen time. next week yeah. in podcast time. I'm going by podcast time, baby. Um, yeah, so look forward to that unnamed thing. Yeah, I'm stoked. Yeah. Yeah. It's all very exciting. Oh, yeah. Uh.
Um, I need to read some of the CIA book. Yeah, let me too. I keep being like, do I know what happened to yeah. Kennedy? Maybe I don't. Maybe Did I made I it all Kennedy? up. Maybe I just dreamt it. Yeah, it was. Oh, my God. If we get to the end of the book and it's like, it was Oswald. <laughs> Uh, dear. Uh, All right. You heard um, it here first, folks. Yeah. It was Oswald. Oswald did it. <laughs> Oswald did it. The bastard. And if only we had the Kennedys still. Uh, um, all right. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. And um, yes, I obviously these last two readings have fared very well, but mm-hmm. I've in, enjoyed uh, coming to terms with the modes. So mm-hmm. I think that's been good. So far, ancient modes still down there on the ones I wouldn't want to hang out on. We'll get to feudalism. We'll see how I feel then. Although we okay. did kind I mean, of talk. It sort of depends who you are. And, yeah, and, true. Yeah. If you're just like some grape-eating, couch-dwelling, like Dionysian <laughs> landlord, that'd be pretty nice. Yeah. Um, I mean, that person exists in all modes of protection yeah, and it would true. always be nice, I suppose. Yeah, true. I mean, the thing was, under, under the primitive mode, that was everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. Um, all right. Yeah. Mm. Okay. All right. Uh, eating on couches, lying down, Tell you what, I can throwing do. up in buckets for all. I, <laughs> I can do with that red bot now. Um, I'm going to go and get some grapes, having said that. <laughs> Let's go and eat to excess. <laughs> eat to excess, since mm. capitalism has allowed us to do. All right, well, uh, we will be back next week with something unnamed but very exciting. Um, in the meantime, uh, thank you very much, Ellen Meeksons Wood. Um, Cup and Joe. I've been down. It's been my very excellent pleasure to join Jack once again, to join the dear listener once again. Yeah. Have a great week. Yep. See ya. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People Too by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time.